Welcome to episode 27 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now, today I'm very excited to welcome Paddy Ryan. Now, Paddy is the co-founder of Odin, an investment platform and community for building the future. Odin are making it 10 times cheaper and easier to launch and invest in syndicates, special purpose vehicles and funds. And before Odin, Paddy was the project director of corporate venture capital at Coca-Cola European Partners. Prior to Coca-Cola, Paddy was head of inbound equity crowdfunding at Crowdcube. Paddy also built his own vodka brand, Ishka, before selling in 2019. Now, Paddy, thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks very much. Great to be here, Alex. Kick things off from the start. Talk me how you first made your way into the world of startups and investing. Yeah, sure. So, um, I guess, I mean, grew up in a family where business wasn't even really a thing and was even, I would say, slightly regarded as, uh, and how, how do I put this? Maybe like not a pursuit for people who are intellectuals or academic. Um, my parents were both doctors. And my dad from more of a middle-class family in the Republic of Ireland from Dublin. My mum from more of a working class family in, in Northern Ireland, and then they moved to the UK and, and we grew up um, in, in you know, near Scunthorpe in a, in a nice little village outside Scunthorpe, um, which is near Leeds. Um, and uh, my, on my dad's side, my granddad uh, had been in, in business and uh, one of his brothers actually uh, started a, a, a plastics extruding company and made a lot of money, um, which was sort of a a legend I heard about growing up and I thought, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Um, so I always sort of knew I, I was interested in, in doing stuff and I, I liked the idea of building something um, and, and, you know, being in control of, of something and, and creating something. I think one of the things that's interesting if, you, if you're in the north of England um, is you can see that anyone who's like made money has usually done it. Yeah, either they're sort of a, a professional, like a, a, a GP or a lawyer or, or something like that, or they've started a business, right? So I uh, was very lucky to go to a private secondary school. And what was really noticeable there was like everyone's parents who weren't lawyers or doctors, they like owned a construction firm or they owned something and, you know, was sort of around that lot. I think thought it was exciting. Ended up studying languages at university, um, Worked in France, worked in Russia, mainly in consumer goods. When I first started, that's how I ended up starting a vodka brand. Um, when I was in Russia, I was working for sort of the Irish, various bodies attached to trade um, for, on, on behalf of the, you know, sort of Irish state. So there's um, an organization called Board Beer or the Irish Food Board that helps Irish food and drink exporters. And then there's an organization called Enterprise Island that helps um, SMEs more in technology and other sectors. So I was exposed to a lot of Irish entrepreneurs trying to do stuff and grow stuff, um, some of them successfully in, you know, even markets like Russia, um, where obviously nowadays our relationships, you know, from a trade perspective, maybe aren't so good, but, um, you know, back then they were. Um, and then one, one of the other things that Enterprise Island did was this high potential startup program that invited foreign founders to come and incorporate in Ireland and they'd be able to, you know, co-invest alongside funds in usually sort of deep tech businesses that were very early stage. Um, so got exposure to a few VCs, relationships like that through that. I met a guy called Dermot Burkery, um, who is a, a, an, an Irish uh, venture capitalist, really, really great guy. 
And I thought, God, his job seems pretty interesting. He gets to sort of think about the future all day and invest in companies building cool stuff. Um, moved back to the UK um, in sort of 2017, um, having spent a few years working in different places. And I started this vodka brand, which is, you know, um, probably like a terrible idea in, in retrospect in terms of like hadn't really done much market research or thought about how I was going to handle distribution, how I was going to sell and, and that sort of thing. But I think it's good to just, one of the things you learn as a founder is like, it's really just, just good just to get up and go and do things and try things. The great thing about software is you can do that in a very, you know, um, uh, lean and iterative way where you don't have to build a lot of stuff. Um, and the vodka thing wasn't really working out, but I'd actually raised money for the company via uh, Indiegogo, like Kickstarter, right? So um, rewards-based crowdfunding, um, and then got interested in you know crowdfunding more generally. You needed a job, and I saw Crowdcube were hiring, so you know just needed work really, and, and applied for work there. And I sort of had you know touched on venture and thought it was an interesting space. Um, I really love what Crowdcube do as a business and what they stand for. And they were really pioneers in, in terms of, you know, opening up, you know, private markets to, to more investors in the UK. I think the, the challenge with crowdfunding as a model is it only works for certain types of, of business, you know, so like in terms of the high quality opportunities that are likely to be venture scale um, and, and really deliver a return on investment, they tend to be more like consumer, right? So Monzo's crowdfunded, you know, businesses like chip and, and, and free trade have, have crowdfunded. And if you got in on early rounds there, you could potentially do, do quite well. I think the other challenge really, the more I sort of, you know, worked there and looked into things and read about things was like, you know, for most investors, you're really going to struggle to, to beat the market. Um, and especially in venture where, you know, it's this unique asset class where the seller really cares who the buyer is. You know, the founders care who they sell their shares to. Um, the best founders are very selective and uh, the sort of a persistency of returns where a lot of the good funds or the good capital allocators or the people with deal access um, tend to consistently get into the good deals and, and deliver returns. So it felt like we weren't really solving for in some ways for the for the problem or we were only partly solving for the problem of like, OK, how do you improve access? And then beyond that, how do you improve efficiency in the private markets because you know what really struck me was um there's an opportunity here to uh, build more stuff the world needs faster um and you know that stuff is in my view going to be mainly built by entrepreneurs with the help of state funding and um of course entrepreneurial financiers in, in in the form of venture capitalists so with odin what we're really trying to do is is solve for that in a slightly different way by um, much like AngelList have, have done in the US and, and platforms like them, you know, create like an infrastructure layer, initially focused on Europe, but, you know, also looking at the rest of the world, you know, MENA and Africa, MENA and, um, you know, also Southeast Asia, I think, and provide a, the plumbing for other people to go and do deals. So, you know, our, our platform is a little bit like Shopify for VC in that it lets anyone come structure an SPV, and pull money from their network and invest in a company. Really more targeted for the time being at high net worth individuals, family offices. We also work with VC firms, especially emerging fund managers. 
Um, and we'll be launching full fund infrastructure to run your fund on our platform as, as well. Um, and then, you know, our plans in the future are basically to add more social features. We're very much sort of a community first company in that we, you know, do a lot of uh, events and connect the people in our ecosystem to one another, but really adding more social features to the platform to make um, the market, you know, sort of more efficient in terms of the discoverability of the different investors to, to one another. Um, and then if you think long term, the idea is once we have lots of people uh, investing on our platform, we can track who's performing well and offer more like thematic products to to retail. Um, a little bit like companies like Vanguard, Fidelity and, and BlackRock have, have done in the public markets, right? Like I think the vast majority of people would rather just invest in sort of tracker funds. Um, if you look at indexed venture, uh, as a whole, it performs quite well, but what you've got to remember is that's, you know, massively driven by the outperformance of the top quartile or even really the top decile of, of investors. Um, and, you know, it's about figuring out how you provide access to that top decile at, at scale. And, you know, that's what we're, we're interested in long-term. Yeah, that's really awesome. And I think coming from the other side of the table with, Crowdcube and then Coca-Cola. Mm. What ultimately made you cut across to be a founder with Odin? Um, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd already done it um, with the vodka brand and like had that itch. And I think, you know, um, I should shout out, you know, like my, my employers and my boss at Crowdcube. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I worked for a guy called Matt Cooper, who's the, the chief commercial officer at Crowdcube. And I think he probably felt like I was one of the most frustrating employees to, to deal with because I was always like, we're doing it wrong. We should do things this way. I had a very strong view on how I thought things should be done. Um, and ultimately, that wasn't necessarily a fit for their business and what they were doing, which also has a, a, a massive place and is super valuable for, for so many founders. I think you know there's a lot of businesses out there that aren't ultimately venture scale and equity crowdfunding is a really great way for communities to, to get behind those businesses and, and still support them. Um, but I was more interested in looking at this from the investor perspective and saying, okay, how do you build something at scale that actually is able to deliver uh, potentially a, like a decent return profile to a large number of people? Because people want to invest in the future, but they also want a financial return, right? Um, exactly. I, I think, you know, the more that you dig into things, um, the more you see that like even within venture and even within, you know, all of these professionally managed funds, 50% of them are, you know, not really washing their face or even delivering, you know, a decent return. Obviously that depends on the vintage. You might have heard of the Kaufman Foundation. Um, they're a big LP in a lot of funds in the US primarily. They've probably got more data on this than anyone else just because they've done so many LP checks. And they found that, you know, uh, I, I think roughly half, I think about 51% of their, uh, their fund investments have not 1xed. So have not delivered back the cash that, that they invested. Um, so, you know, what's interesting about that is it shows that like you as Joe Public, if you want to invest in this asset class, need access to, you need to be able to really diversify and take lots of lots of bets. And then you also need like, data and information that allows you to make an educated decision about where you should be putting your money, whether that's with an individual doing a specific deal, um, or whether it's with a fund that's deploying your money into multiple deals.
you know, really, really great points. And, you know, diving in that one level further with Odin, obviously your mission is to build this investment community and create these tools for people building the future. Mm. Talk through how Odin enables this right now with the current platform. Yeah, good question. So so right now we, we basically let anyone come to us and set up a deal and uh, pull money from their network to in, invest in a company for, you know, uh, founders that can be just raising money from, you know, their close network. Uh, it's not really crowdfunding in the sense that like, you know, the minimum check sizes tend to be, you know, a thousand dollars up, but really more on average, more like five to ten thousand dollars. Um, so it's it's more at the sophisticated end. I would say you know ninety five percent of our uh, users work in tech or work in financial services, something adjacent. So you know they have a, a reasonable understanding of the the risk um, and the you know allocating. And what we're aiming to allow them to do is to allocate a small proportion of their total investment por- portfolio to private markets and specifically to you know venture or angel investing. Um, and to be able to write, you know, smaller checks. So instead of writing like one 10K check a year, which is, you know, probably what I could have afforded to do before, you know, even on a decent, you know, salary um, at, at a corporate, um, you can maybe do 10 1K checks, which, you know, a lot of the data indicates that is, you know, especially if you want to make investments yourself and pick deals yourself, really as an angel investor, you want to be doing 100, 150 deals and, you know, getting to that sort of portfolio size in order to, Firstly, increase your probability of, of hitting an outlier and uh, making a, a large return, but also decreasing your probability of, of losing money. Um, so, you know, we want to enable that. Um, we also let people lead those deals. So, like, if you have good deal access, um, you can bring other people in alongside you via your syndicate, charge a bit of carried interest if you want, so that you are taking a, a cut of the upside. I think what's interesting with this in Europe is we're at a stage now in the ecosystem in Europe where um, it's starting to be fairly mature. There's been quite a lot of liquidity events. Um, you hear about the big IPOs, but there's also smaller acquisitions happening. And what that means is that there's both founders, but then also people who've been at like uh, early at those startups and maybe were at like VP level and above who are, who want to reinvest in the ecosystem here and, and write angel checks. But you know, they're not necessarily writing 50,000, you know, euro pound dollar checks into deals, right? Uh, they might be, you know, doing more like, you know, a couple of grand here and there into lots of deals, but they have very good deal access. And, you know, I would argue sometimes, you know, especially at the early stages, probably a, a better ability to, to pick and maybe some of the people working in the funds do. And, you know, to be honest, it's starting to change, but a lot of the funds tend to really invest at seed stage and when they say seed they mean okay you've got like a decent amount of attraction you know maybe like a couple hundred grand of arr uh, at least and decent growth metrics um if you look at the us there have been a lot of liquidity events and there are a lot of people with operational backgrounds and expertise working in venture i think you know 60 percent plus of people in the funds have previously built businesses as founders or been early employees which you know, the, the sort of no difference, right? Everyone's involved in, in you know, it takes a village in, in, in building those sorts of companies. And I think that what, what that means is they have potentially a little bit more product insight. And uh, I think that sort of product insight into like, okay, how do you actually go about building a business um, is, is quite valuable to 
founders at the earliest stages. And, and going back to what I said earlier about the seller caring who the buyer is in venture, um, I think there's this real opportunity for operator investors to, you know, sort of be leading deals. And what we let them do is bring in money from their network. You know, if you talk to anyone who's, you know, a series A, series B founder with an AI company, if they've got mates who work in investment banking or something like that, they'll all be asking them, hey, do you see any hot AI deals that I should be investing in? And we're sort of a tool that, you know, facilitates those transactions, which, you know, people want to to happen anyway. And we let them happen in, I would argue, a lower risk way because we allow people to invest smaller, you know, checks. You know, I, I also want to know, Patrick, at least from the investing side that you mentioned there, what lessons and principles have you pulled across to help inform how you build Odin today? Mm. I think for us, from a business perspective, I think one of the most important things, so I think James Courier is probably like one of the clearest writers on like how to build software that, that scales. He works for, he's one of the founding partners at NFX Capital. He built a bunch of businesses before that. Um, I think, you know, thinking clearly about how you drive network effects in your business is super important. You know, according to their research at NFX Capital, 70% of the value in tech is um, driven by, in, in terms of big market cap stocks, is driven by businesses with strong network effects. Um, so what that means is you need to try and make your product multiplayer as much of, as possible and stop yourself from being like the rate limiting factor in terms of the number of interactions, transactions, the amount of content, like whatever your product is, the amount of that that happens on your platform, you know, it needs to be like user generated. And uh, I think that principle is something I, I, I took away from, from Crowdcube where we were sort of the rate limiting factor in terms of the number of deals that could be done, uh, firstly. And then the second thing is that venture is all about access, right? Like uh, the t only the top 10% of deals or so are, are gonna succeed. The ones that are good tend to be competitive because Venture is essentially like growth slash momentum investing. You know, you're basically looking like, okay, are this is this team very compelling? Um, and I, obviously, I'm oversimplifying. And you know, I'm very young, and there's a lot that I don't know here. So obviously, take all of this with a pinch of salt. But for me, it's sort of like, okay, are this team brilliant? Um, is this market big? And uh, do do they have a product that's like uh, enough of a uh, hair on fire need for the users in that market that, you know, they can charge a decent uh, clip for it. Um, you know, the average contract value per user is is high, or there's just so many users and you can acquire them without any any effort. And, and then beyond, and I'm talking specifically about software, right? Like biotech's, you know, very different principles and I can't claim to know anything about that stuff, to be honest. Um, Beyond that, it, it's sort of like, okay, you know, barring all of the numerous unpredictable things that can happen, it's like, okay, can you execute and, and scale this? Um, so uh, the businesses that are doing that, especially by the time they get to seed in series A, it's like relatively clear the types of business that could fall in that category and the types of business that couldn't. What that means is, those rounds will tend to be competitive. So getting into those deals means you need an access point to those deals. Um, 
our view is okay if we build this infrastructure for more of these operator investors in europe then they will also act as an access point because they have deal access but they don't always have the infrastructure or the capital available and on call themselves so what we can be is is sort of like a silent partner partner or a decentralized fund almost providing all of that infrastructure to those people and then tracking who's performing well and doubling down on, on, on those people and providing them with access to more capital and you know more relationships from our network and, and all of that sort of thing. Within raising capital and creating this investing community, I am curious, Paddy, in that, you know, how, fundamentally, how does Odin separate the signal from the noise, right? And ultimately differentiate itself whilst building its community? Um, do you mean separate the signal from the noise in, in terms of, uh, the opportunities that we see and what we share with our, our broader network or exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because you know, there, there are countless, you know, um, discord servers there, but in terms of individuals, you know, truly deriving meaning from that, from that community that you're building, you know, how, how are you going about that? So, you know, right now it's, it's been very sort of like, you got to do things that don't scale. So we do a lot of private dinners where we get oh, a wow. bunch of people together that we think will connect well with one another and we think can add value for one another. Um, and, uh, we sort of help people grow that and build their syndicates that way. Um, I think, uh, you have to be really, so, so, you know, we do, we do a bit of that. And then it, for us, if we're sharing opportunities with people, um, I think you need to also take some, you know, sort of simple heuristics and say, okay, are there, uh, credible investors in this round? Uh, you know, that we're alongside, do those investors have potential to follow their money, which is important in terms of, you know, the, the ability of these businesses to, to be sustainable. And then I would also always come back to like, uh, you know, something that Bill Janeway would always say, which is like cash and control is king. So like, is the business cash generative? Has it got a clear route to profitability? Um, is it growing quickly? Um, uh, the control piece is, is less of a thing. That's more something that, you know, the larger investors in the round would be interested in. Um, but yeah, for me, you know, call me old fashioned, but you know, I, I tend to be like, does this business make money and has it got a clear way to, to get close to, to making money? I, you know, I sat on my hands quite a lot last year, personally, from an angel investing perspective. And to be honest, right now, mainly focus on building Odin. So I don't do much angel investing, but, um, I think we're caught up at the moment and have been for the last, you know, maybe five, 10 years in, in a, a euphoria of uh, the current technological revolution. And that always happens. That means you're in a sort of a huge bubble. You're in a situation where private market assets are valued higher than public market comparables, even though there's going to be a, a, you know, an, a liquidity premium that you pay for, for, for liquid assets. Um, so uh, I think, just being sane and being rational and being, you know, sort of being like, okay, is this a fair price to, to pay, you know, is, is one thing. And then I also think go early and um, I'm a fan of, you know, spreading your bets fairly wide. Um, it's a really good piece of research on this. Uh, there's several good pieces of research on this. There's a lot of good work done by the team at AngelList. Um, it's a good piece I always refer to written by a guy called Steve Crossan, who was previously at DeepMind um, and is now at First Minute Capital, I think, um, where he sort of 
did modeling on you know how big venture portfolios should be if you're looking at this rationally and you know really you know you should try and have 150 to 300 company portfolios unfortunately that's not really possible for most funds because they need to sit on boards and be actively involved so most of them will tend to have 15 to 25 you know asset portfolios per per fund but you know as an individual investor you can definitely go and do that and if you look at a lot of the successful individual investors um, so people like Fabrice Grinder or Charlie Songhurst in, in Europe or, you know, Jason Calacanis uh, in the US, they have very large portfolios and do, do lots of deals. And that's how you increase the probability of hitting outliers that are going to thousand X your money and also, you know, decrease the probability of not hitting any winners at all, which will mean that you, you lose money. So, um, you know, right now we, we don't do much of this, but we're building out more social features on our platform. And part of that will be, you know, a big focus on content and education. Um, I think putting as much information in front of people as possible and, and making sure they inform themselves um, and make pragmatic decisions about how they invest. You've expanded your team quite significantly since the pre-seed last year. I'm if you want to know, Paddy, what do you look for when hiring great talent? Mm, good question. So I would say out of the two of us, um, Mary is actually probably the better person on, on hiring. My, my co-founder, who's uh, brilliant and very smart. Um, so she's software engineering, product management background. I'm more sales and marketing. So we always try and, especially on more senior hires, like assess people together. I think the most important things to me are intelligence, but intelligence alone is useless. Um, I think, you know, kindness is, is a good thing to look for because it indicates emotional intelligence and the ability to be a good team player. Um, I like people who've got good evidence of having worked well in teams before, whether that's at work or elsewhere, you know, in sport. I think conscientiousness is very important that's something you know alex mcdonald is one of our investors and you know when i asked for his advice on hiring he was like that's the main thing i look for and you know what that means is do people do what they say they're going to do um so it's you know a good proxy for hard work is basically the same thing and you can test for that in like personality testing and, and stuff like that as well um although you know i think some of those tests are quite easy to um you know sort of uh scam your way through um and uh beyond that it sort of depends on what role you're hiring them for right like uh if, if it's more of a sales or partnerships role i think them being agreeable and likable is is potentially more important if it's uh more of an operations role then it might be something like attention to detail and, and focus that's that's more important yeah you know, at least duping one of those one of those tests. Now, I'm sure there are hacks and secrets to, uh, to successfully navigate your way there. Um, at least, you know, from from the role of at least community is playing now in terms of building building a startup. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm curious to hear your take, Paddy, on how is you know building out a community element when you're uh, beginning your startup more important than ever. Yeah, good question. Um, look, community is like sort of this word that gets bandied around a lot nowadays. Um, I think, you know, with Web3, it's really it's really picked up momentum. I think 
if you look at the internet, what it does generally to things is it sort of like uh, pulls them apart and turns them into sort of networked, uh, you know, uh, products or, or network platforms um, that are made up of, you know, groups of people. So broadly, you know, anything on the internet has an element of community attached to it, right? Even if it's not direct. So an example of that would be something like Robinhood and Wall Street Bets on Reddit, sort of, you know, uh, a part of the same uh, phenomenon, uh, even if they're not directly linked to one another. I think when you're starting out, it's about identifying a, a small group of people. Uh, and yeah, sorry, the other thing I would say on this is what the internet does is allows people with the same interest who may be at opposite ends of the world to come together. Uh, that's both a beautiful thing. And then, you know, for every, uh, you know, uh, amazing thing, there's also, you know, sort of a, a yin and a yang, right? So you end up with a lot of horrible, you know, uh, people who are able to congregate and, and do, you know, not very nice things on, you know, places like 4chan and, and 8chan and whatever. Um, or, you know, I, I shouldn't call them horrible people, but, you know, people with, you know, ideas that, you know, wouldn't necessarily jive with what most people think. Um, so, yeah, I think there are so many communities out there. It's about finding a niche and uh, thinking, okay, how can I really create value for these people, right? If they're my customers, what are they interested in, in buying? Some great stuff written by Greg Eisenberg on this, on like unbundling Reddit and, and stuff like that. I think there's so many businesses to be built in in the space of like looking at an online community and then and then figuring out you know what they want i think in terms of building real community you have to ask okay how are we building like strong bonds between people um why is there loyalty between people so if you look at something like a u university uh, alumni network uh, the reason people feel loyalty to that broader community is that they've all been through an experience together while with with a with a a pocket of those people while they're at university and they've also overcome sort of some sort of adversity together so i think if you can we haven't really figured this out right so i would say you know we do like the dinners together and there's some sort of uh, camaraderie because people tend to have like a founder or operator background and they've got shared war stories but if you look at the really strong communities they build that adversity into the product experience in some way. So um, I think on deck do this quite well in that you know, you join on deck and then you have to go through this program with people and you've got homework and you've got to do things together and work together. And what that means is, and at the end of it, you get a certificate, right? And that means that you have an achievement that you've achieved with those other people. So you really feel a sense of loyalty to them. And then, you know, possibly by extension to the broader on deck network i think you know y combinator is another very interesting example of that there's also a, a writing community called rite of passage where you know people join and then you have to write a piece and then other people review and give you feedback and you know you're all trying to improve as writers and i think um having that sort of like shared hardship is, is really important you see that in all communities right all religions like people are um praying together in order to like achieve some sort of transcendence or whatever, which is like the, the end goal or, you know, tough mudder or CrossFit, right? People are going through like something grueling together and that brings them closer. Um, so I think that's probably the most important thing. If you want to build strong bonds and strong community and real loyalty to whatever you're doing from a business perspective. Yeah. I think that idea of 
facing adversity together and then forming those deep meaning, meaningful connections out of that yeah big big believer in that Paddy I do want to know what's your strategic vision for Odin over the next five years yeah so I mean I think the world is inherently incredibly unpredictable so we tend to make three month plans rather than five year plans but in terms of where we we think it can be taken um I think there's an opportunity to build something um, that sort of sits at the center of this is going to sound quite nebulous, um, but, you know, sort of at the center of like value, how value is created and distributed. Um, and I think there are ways to to reimagine that if you, if you think about, um, you know, all of the value that's, that's, that, that's available to create, um, I think a lot of that stuff is going to happen in the private markets. I think a lot of it's sitting locked up and like unloved at the moment. If you think about how many pieces of PhD research there are that are sitting in a drawer somewhere uh, that really should have been spun out and turned into businesses and used to, you know, create solutions to, to big problems. Um, and, you know, really we'd like to sit at the center of that. So for, for us, what's more exciting even than like being an investing product, right? So I think, you know, at a certain level, we've got the opportunity to build something like BlackRock for the private markets, right? So like an access point to private markets that aggregates assets, gives people the ability to invest in funds, invest in specific deals, also, you know, is collecting lots of data and is able to do interesting things with that. So I think that's one level. I think the level sort of beyond that is just like by almost commoditizing you know the ex access to to vcmp um and uh increasing the the flow of capital um what does that allow you to do in terms of like building more stuff that the world needs you know much faster and i think that will, will require you know we're only a tiny piece of that right like government has so much to do in in, in that and, and, and regulators and, and policymakers and, and stuff like that but you know really we'd like to be a piece of that i i look at I look at like, you know, our parents grew up on like Star Trek and thought we'd be, you know, in space exploring nearby solar systems by now. Right. And we haven't, I don't think we, I'm a big fan of Peter Thiel's thesis of like, we haven't progressed anywhere near as fast as we should have. Um, I think a lot of that's to do with, you know, uh, sort of the incentives of consumerism and I think more ownership um would be a good thing for for capitalism so having more people who are shareholders and fewer people who are just you know marx thinks about capitalism as that tension between like um financial capital which is the one percent and labor which is the 99 percent. i think you know there's potential for that to sort of get flipped on its head in in, in the 21st century and we want to you know just be a sort of a part of that movement which is very much in the ethos of like web3 uh, we call it more broadly you know, capitalism 2.0, I don't think personally that the um, the technology is is the rate limiting factor or the problem here. Um, I think it's more, you know, a cultural thing um, and about, you know, distribution. I actually also think you need to engage with the traditional world of sort of old power. And, and, and that means doing stuff through structures like we do that are registered with governments and you know trying to work with regulators and, and figure out how to do this in as legitimate way as possible is is important but we definitely also have one eye on okay can we use web3 infrastructure to do things you know 
more efficiently and, and, and better and faster. And, you know, if we can, then there's potential to move into that space. What would you say is the greatest lesson you've learned from building so far, Paddy? Um, I think um, keep testing different things and don't double down on ideas. Don't build anything until you know that someone actually wants it. Like If someone actually wants your product, it can look horrible and people will pay for it. Um, I think that's probably the main thing. There's so many people out there building stuff that nobody wants. And uh, the real, you know, uh, litmus test for that is will someone pay for it and how much money will they pay for it? And if they'll only pay a little bit, there better be millions of them. I like it. You know, you can't be building solutions for problems. At least from that, you know, what, then advice do you, or at least would you give to founders that want to begin a new venture under this economic climate? Yeah, good question. I'd be, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be wary of giving too much advice. I, I, I think, um, look, I would say don't work for someone, um, make money uh, and test all your ideas at someone else's expense. Don't go and try and raise money um too early figure out something uh that uh people want and also try and do it in a space where you know you're passionate ideally you want to find something that sits in the middle of you know that sort of venn diagram of something i i love something i'm good at something the world needs and something i can i can make money doing um and if it sits in the middle of all of those things you'll feel like a sense of fulfillment from from building it but you know if it can't fit all four of those things i think you know the world needing it and people being willing to pay for it are like the most important things for for an entrepreneur i think it depends how you're wired like if if you if you're uh, just interested in making money um which i'm not uh making a value judgment about by the way i'm just saying like if, if you're very driven by money um which is fine i don't have a problem with that um i think there's a lot of stuff you can build without being too passionate about it. Um, I think if you want to build something really big, it, it, it's going to be a lot easier if, if you if you love it and you, you you can't stop thinking about it and you want to read about it and you want to learn about it because you're going to, you're going to become an expert in it, right? And you're going to uh, have a much higher probability of, of of success. You're also going to be more driven to to keep working on it, even when you know the things don't look so good and then on the economic climate um i don't know i think you can also be quite structured about the way you approach uh what you build um so i would be right now if i i was thinking about if i was looking for ideas for something to be to build i'd be like okay well what does well in a recession right and like maybe there are things to be built in those markets and that's the sort of thing that vcs are going to going to want to fund as as well um and then also ultimately you know you know remember revenue is much better than raising money from anyone um people will pay for it yeah no i'm all about that um i think you know you've or at least the ability to test 
to assess the viability of a product or service that you want to bring to market, see if there's a real demand there, but doing that under someone else's time, like you, like you, like you mentioned, I think is, is huge. I think you can't take that, that jump too early and leave all security behind. I think doing it where you're minimizing your own risk, risk profile is, is yeah, great piece of advice there, Paddy. Um, at least from a you know non-investing, non-startup uh, angle, tell me what does your perfect day look like? <laughs> so, um, like on a weekend or something like that? Do you mean? If you could construct a perfect day, regardless of weekend or weekday, what would it what would it consist of? All right, good question. Um, I would, you know, get up, probably make breakfast, sit with my wife, you know, have a nice cooked breakfast, coffee, and uh, then I chill and read for a couple of hours. This is actually what I do, like most weekends, no, to be no. honest. Chill and read, chill and read for a couple no. of hours, and then go and do a bit of exercise. Um, you know, if I'm in London, I'll go to the gym around the corner, or I'll go for a swim in Hampstead Heath, um, which we're very lucky to near live nearby. Um, if I was, you know, nearer to the coast, I'd probably try and go surfing for a couple of hours um, and then come home, uh, you know, have some food and, um, you know, maybe meet a friend in the evening and, and, and go for a beer. Um, that would be a pretty nice day to me. Yeah, my, uh, well, I have a family member who lives up in Hampstead and those ponds I think they're getting a little bit chilly now that the now that the summer's coming to pass. But sounds sounds good nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit of a. Uh, I enjoy the the cold swims and and stuff like that. I guess you know before we started recording, I was saying to you we, I grew up doing a lot of windsurfing, which is you know sort of a weird niche sport that my dad was into. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I sort of like I just like getting out in nature. I think especially if you live in the city there's a lot to be said for trying to spend a couple of hours a week, like somewhere in nature. And what I love about Hampstead is uh, you're 20 minutes from the middle of town. Um, but uh, you're also, uh, it's a big forest, right? A lot of it. And you, you know, you can get out and walk around there and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, yeah. Even though it's cold, you gotta, you gotta, you know, Wim Hof vibes, right? It's all in. You gotta, you gotta tough it out, mate. No, I love that. Yeah, it's as well as the idea from a physical standpoint, also from a mental standpoint, right? Where I like to use this idea of giving yourself breathing room, where often the best ideas that you ideate come from periods of inaction, periods where you're, say, by yourself, you might be in the shower, I think is the, the, mo the most common one for most people who live pretty hectic lives. But giving yourself that breathing space to come up with new ideas or at least tackle <laughs> shit that was the uh that was the apartment buzzer going off i'll have to come cover that one again paddy but um no i i was i was saying that at least giving yourself that that breathing room to come up with new ideas and idea on new, new new thoughts is uh cool yeah i agree i think there's you know there's different ways to achieve that for different people um you got me more into meditation i do try and you know do a bit of that i'm not as good or as disciplined with it as i as i should be i think i think one of the most important skills in the 21st century will just be the ability to like slow down and not give in to you know the um 
temptations and distractions of your phone and you know electronic devices it's like being able to sit and do nothing i think is really important to um creativity and productivity but beyond that to like your well-being um you know uh being able to have a calm mind and and, and also you know not be the uh sort of victim of your thoughts or your emotions but really be able to step back and, and be apart from them i think is is uh you know going to be super important totally always headspace. has been yeah man headspace is everything and final question coming in from our previous guest zach lloyd he's the founder and ceo of warp you had him on the show yesterday paddy and the question he left for you was what animal would you want to be reborn as Uh, great question. Um, I think I'd go with probably a dolphin. They seem to have a lot of fun. They seem pretty smart. And yeah, they spend all day sort of swimming. So yeah, that's what I'd go with. A very, uh, a very calm and collected lifestyle there whilst having fun, most importantly. <laughs> Love that. Cool, man. Well, listen, we've come to the end now. It's been quite a bit of fun. I've Really, really enjoy this one, my friend, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it, it was a real pleasure. Um, so, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Cheers, guys. Hope you enjoy the show, and uh, catch you very, very soon.